Somehow that had been the start of her difficulties. Michigan Produce. The words, not the building, which appeared to be a wholesale fruit and vegetable warehouse. Two days earlier, driving along inattentively, in fact, in one of her dazes, her trances, Mitchell Faber's words, Willie had found herself here, on this desolate section of Union Street, and the two words atop the big, grimy structure had all but peeled themselves off the warehouse, set themselves on fire, and floated aflame toward her through the slate-colored air. Willie had the feeling that she had been led here, that her trance had been charged with purpose, and that she had been all along meant to come across this building. She wondered if this kind of thing ever happened to someone else. Almost instantly, Willie dismissed the strange little vision that blazed abruptly in her mind of a beautiful, dark-haired teenaged boy, skateboard in one hand, standing dumbstruck on a sunlit street before an empty, ordinary-looking building. Her imagination had always been far too willing to leap into service, whether or not at the time imagination was actually useful. That sometimes it had been supremely useful to Willie did not diminish her awareness that her imaginative faculty could also turn on her savagely. Oh, yes. You never knew which was the case, either, until the dread began to crawl up your arms. The image of a teenaged boy and an empty house added to the sum of disorder at large in the universe, and she sent it back to the mysterious realm from which it had emerged. Because, hey, what might be in that empty house? Chapter 3 The memory of the messages he had seen on Monday awakened Tim Underhill's curiosity, and before going on to answer the few of the day's emails that required responses, he clicked on deleted items, of which he seemed now to have accumulated in excess of 2,000, and looked for the ones that matched those he had just received. There they were, together in the order in which he had deleted them, Huffy and Preston, with the blank subject lines that indicated a kind of indifference to protocol he wished he did not find mildly annoying. He clicked on the first message. From Huffy to T. Underhill at nyc.rr.com Sent Monday, September 1st, 2003, 8.52 a.m. Subject, blank. Re-member. That was the opposite of dis-member, Tim supposed, and dis-member was the guy standing next to dat-member. He tried the second one. From Preston. To T. Underhill at nyc.rr.com. Sent Monday, September 1st, 2003, 9.01 a.m. Subject, blank. No, hello. Useless. Meaningless. A nuisance. Huffman and Preston were kids who had figured out how to hide their email addresses. Presumably they had learned his from the website mentioned on the jacket of his latest book. He looked again at the two emails he had just dumped. From Rudderless to T. Underhill at nyc.rr.com Sent Wednesday, September 3rd, 2003, 6.32 a.m. Subject, blank. No time. And from Lou May to T. Underhill at nyc.rr.com 
Sent, Wednesday, September 3, 2003, 6.41 a.m. Subject, blank. There was. There was, was there? All of these enigmatic messages sounded as though their perpetrators were half asleep, or as though their hands had been snatched off the keyboard. Maybe by the next customer at some internet cafe, since the second messages came only minutes after the first ones. What were the odds that four people savvy enough to delete the second half of their email addresses would decide, more or less simultaneously, to send early morning gibberish to the same person? And how much steeper were the odds against one of them writing no hello, whatever that meant, and another deciding, with no prior agreement, upon the echo phrase no time? Although he thought such a coincidence was impossible, he still felt mildly uneasy as he rejected it. Because that left only two options, and both raised the ante. Either the four people who'd sent the emails to him were acting together in conspiracy, or the emails had all been sent by the same person using four names. The names, Huffy, Preston, Rudderless, Lumet, suggested no pattern. They were not familiar. A moment later, Tim remembered that back in his hometown, Millhaven, Illinois, a boy named Paul Reston had been his teammate on the Holy Sepulchre football team. Polly Reston had been a chaotic little fireplug with greasy hair, a shoplifting problem, and a tendency toward violence. It seemed profoundly unlikely that after a silence of forty-odd years, Polly would send him a two-word email. Tim read the messages over again, thought for a second, then rearranged them. Remember, there was no hello, no time which could just as easily have been, remember, there was no time, no hello. Or, there was no time, no hello, remember. Not much of an advance, was it? The possibility that hello could be a typo for help came to mind. Remember, there was no time, no help. Whatever the hell that was about, it was pretty depressing. Also depressing was the notion that four people had decided to send him that disjointed message. If Tim felt like getting depressed, he had merely to think of his brother Philip, who not much more than one year after his wife's suicide and the disappearance of his son had announced his impending marriage to one China Beach, a born-again Christian whom Philip had met shortly after her emergence from the chrysalis of an exotic dancer. On the whole, Tim decided he'd rather think about the inexplicable emails. They had the stale, slightly staid aura of a Sherlock Holmes setup. Faintly, the rusty machinery of a hundred old detective novels could be heard, grinding into what passed for life. Nonetheless, in the twenty-first century, any such thing had to be seen as a possible threat. At the very least, a malign hacker could have compromised the security of his system. When his antivirus program discovered no loathsome substance hidden within his folders and files, Tim procrastinated a little further by calling his computer guru, Myron Durant Rivage. Myron looked like a Spaniard, and he spoke with a surprisingly musical German accent. He had rescued Tim and his companions at fifty-five grand from multiple catastrophes. Amazingly, Myron answered his phone on the second ring. 
Sotim, he said, being equipped with infallible caller ID as well as a headset. Tell me your problem. I am booked solid for at least the next three days, but perhaps we can solve it over the phone. It isn't exactly a computer problem. You are calling me about a personal problem, Tim? Momentarily, Tim considered telling his computer guru about what had happened that morning on West Broadway. Myron would have no sympathy for any problem that involved a ghost. He said, I've been getting weird emails, and described the four messages. My virus check came up clean, but I'm still a little worried. You probably won't get a virus unless you open an attachment. Are you bothered by the anonymity? Well, yeah. How do they do that? Leave out their addresses. Is that legal? Legal schmiegel. I could arrange the same thing for you if you were willing to pay for it. But what I cannot do is trace such an email back to its source. These people pay their fees for a reason after all. Myron drew in his breath, and Tim heard the clatter of metal against metal. It was like talking to an obstetrician who was delivering a baby. After hanging up, Tim noticed that three new emails had arrived since his last look at his inbox. The first, Monster Oral Sex Week, undoubtedly offered seven days free access to a porn site. The second, 300,000 customers, almost certainly linked to an email database. The third, Nairam, made the skin on his forearms prickle. The sex and the customers disappeared unopened into the landfill of deleted mail. As he had dreaded, Nairam proved, when clicked upon, to have arrived without the benefit of a filled-in subject line or identifiable email address. It had been...